prayer is the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, if you think about what is happening in prayer, it is astounding that the God of the universe invites little people on this little planet in the vastness of the universe to draw near to him personally and talk to him. It is, I mean, if you grew up in the church, maybe it's kind of like ho-hum, ho-hum, prayer is something that Christians do, but it is amazing. It's amazing. And when Jesus teaches us to pray in what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, it's, just a, it's a model prayer for us. It's not just a prayer to be repeated, but it's a prayer, it's a model for us and how to pray and how to relate with God and come to God with our needs. He teaches us to come to God as our Father, as our Father. You, you know a lot about people when you pray with them and you hear how they address God. They address him and it just feels like he's someone distant. He's a long ways away. And Jesus wants to break that down. He wants us to know God as our father. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, he was, of course, his disciples were Jews. First century Jews did not refer to God as their father. They didn't do that. In fact, in all the Old Testament, all the prophets, the men and women of God, not one of them addressed God in the first person as their father. Of course, the, the idea of God being Father is, is all throughout the Old Testament, but no one addressed God as Father. And Jesus teaches us to call God our Father, and more than just call him our Father, to relate with him as our Father. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Who has children? I mean, don't you love when your child, when they were young, when they came and jumped up and, and grabbed hold of your... Or, grabbed hold of your leg and jumped in your lap and said, Daddy or Mommy, we get to come to God like that. It's astounding. Now, the only way we can do that, of course, is through Jesus. We could never do that on our own. We, and that's why in the Old Testament, no one did that. Right? We could never come to God as Father or know him as Father or relate with him as Father apart from Christ. It's only in and through Jesus Christ that we can do this. Apart from Jesus, we have no business of even coming to God. We are alienated from God apart from Christ. We are estranged from him. He's because of our sin, right? He's a long ways away, and and he's estranged from us because of our sin. And yet through Jesus, we can draw near to God as our Father. We can know him as our Father. We can can draw near to him and, and pour out our hearts to him as our Father. Jesus has made the way for us to draw near to God. And that is amazing. We've learned about this in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, one of the main themes is that Jesus has opened a way for us to come near to God. To not live at a distance from Him, but to know Him personally, to know Him intimately. David said earlier that how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose trespasses will never be counted against him. It's when our sins are forgiven and we stand in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus that we can know God as our Father. And then, amazingly, Galatians 4 says, because of what Christ has done, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that from the heart we can cry, or we do cry, Abba, Father. Abba is this personal, intimate word, Aramaic word for, we might say something like Papa or Daddy or something like that. Do you know God in that way? Because your prayer life will suffer or will grow and mature and flourish to the degree that you do or don't relate with God as your Father. All the New Testament, well, I shouldn't say all of them. I didn't look up all of them. All right, Paul's New Testament prayers. He addresses God as Father. He he comes to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with addressing Jesus or even addressing the Holy Spirit, but the model is that we come to God as our gracious, generous, loving, forgiving, merciful, strong Father. And we pour out our hearts to him. Today's, last week I I covered the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, that God's name would be 
glorified in and through our lives. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Those three petitions, it's all about God, your name, your kingdom, your will. And today we're going to talk about the last three petitions, which say, help us, right? Help us. First it was was about you, your name, your kingdom, your will. Now it's give us what we need and forgive us our sins and help us to live in a pleasing way to you. And Honestly, when I was thinking about these three petitions, even just this morning, what came to mind is Jesus is teaching us to pray and deal with God and and approach our Father in reality. In reality. Today we're going to, looking at the last three petitions, I, I would sum up these three petitions with three words. Humility, honesty, and holiness. Humility, Jesus is teaching us to come to the Father humble and needy, seeking his daily help. Honesty, Jesus teaches us to come before the Father with honesty, asking forgiveness for our sins. And holiness, Jesus is teaching us to come to the Father asking to for help to grow in holiness or to, for help to grow in living in a way that pleases him. So Jesus wants us to come to the Father in reality, in just, just with the raw reality of how things actually are. We need his help. We need his forgiveness. And we need his help to live in a way that pleases him. And we really need these things. There's a psalm, I think it's Psalm 60. Eight, I believe, maybe 66. And it says, it, it describes prayer as pouring out our hearts to God. Pouring out our hearts to God like a child. Pouring out their hearts, their heart to mom or dad. Pouring out our hearts Sometimes when we pray together, it, it just, all of a sudden, it gets kind of stiff and, and uh, overly cerebral, and we just kind of, it's, don't, don't get me wrong, we should think as we pray, right? We shouldn't turn off our minds and pray and just say whatever comes out. But prayer is a pouring out of our hearts to God, and Jesus wants us to do that. So let's take a look at these three petitions. Humility, honesty, holiness, three H's. Okay, one of them silent, but three H's. First, humility. Jesus teaches us to approach the Father in prayer humbly for daily help. Prayer is not for the self-sufficient. It's not for those who see no need. Prayer is for the humble and the needy. In fact, a prayerless life bears witness either of rank pride or of unbelief. Pride says, I don't need God's help. And unbelief says, I'm not sure God can help. The humble says, I am needy. I have such need. My cupboards aren't bare, right? I have bread at home. I'm going to have lunch after church. But I have other needs that are much more important than even bread in the cupboard. Prayer is for people, quite frankly, just like us. We are needy. Sometimes we don't see it, but we are needy. And so Jesus tells us to come to our Father with our needs. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, and he wrote, To pray is to accept that we are, and always will be, wholly or entirely, dependent on God for everything. John Piper strikes the same note when he says, prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as worthy. Prayer humbles us as needy. We come to God in need. Do you see your need? I mean, do you see the, the deep needs that God actually wants to supply for you? 
I mean, quite frankly, so often, you know, we live in such a wealthy society and, and we are sink, swimming in a bunch of wealth, sometimes sinking in wealth and, and luxury and comforts. We just have a hard time seeing need. And may God show us our needs today, our needs of him, our need of mercy, our need of help in profound ways. We need him. So here's how Jesus tells us to pray. Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. We are to approach the Father humbly and dependent, seeking him for help. Like someone whose cupboards are bare, asking for bread. Asking for just the basic things we need today. The things we need today. Obviously, Jesus is not telling us just to pray for bread. Like, because this wouldn't apply to anyone in America if that's the case, right? No one in America, probably, hardly anyone, even homeless people, probably needs a loaf of bread today. Jesus is telling us to pray for our daily needs. But bread, in the Old Testament, was a powerful picture of God's provision for his people. Remember how God cared for the people of Israel, right? He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, strong arm. He brought them through the Red Sea, right? He opened up the Red Sea. The people passed through it. This actually happened. It's not just allegorical. This happened. They went through the Red Sea, and when Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen went through, God closed up the sea and destroyed them. And the people came through the other side of the Red Sea, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and it didn't take long before they started grumbling. In fact, it probably was the first time they heard their stomachs growl. They started grumbling. They said, we are hungry. They started saying, I wish we were back in Egypt. At least we could have some food. In Exodus chapter 16, God says, I am going to rain bread from heaven down on you. And he did. God provided bread for the people. But here's the thing. God provided bread day after day. And he said, take enough bread for the day. Don't take more. Take enough for one day. In fact, if you take more, it's going to stink up your tent and it's going to be crawling with worms. Don't do it. People did that. And that's what happened. Take enough bread for one day. Except the day prior to the Sabbath, take enough for two. So you don't go out on the Sabbath. And that's what God did. He provided for them. He provided just what they needed. And he promises to do that for us as well. He promises to provide us with what we need. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What a promise. Paul does not say that God will supply every additional comfort, every additional luxury that we may want. And sometimes that's what we spend our time praying for, quite frankly. Right? He provides our needs. He supplies our needs. He is faithful to do so. George Mueller was an evangelist in the 19th century, 1800s, in England, who started orphanages. And he helped to care for thousands of children. I think it was tens of thousands, maybe maybe 100,000 kids over his lifetime. And amazingly, he was known as a, this isn't amazing, but he was known as a man of prayer. And amazingly, he never once asked for a donation. Ever. And he didn't come from wealth. Never asked for a donation. He just prayed and trusted that God would supply all of their needs. And he proved over and over again that God is a God who provides our true needs with his provision. There's one story where George Mueller has, you know, has the children in, in an orphanage. He's with them. And the plates and the cups and the bowls on the table are completely empty. There's no food in the cupboard, cupboards, there's no food in the pantry, and there's no money to buy food. The children are standing there waiting for their morning meal, and there's no food in the house, in the orphanage. And George Mueller says, children, we can't be late for school, 
So he lifted up his hands and said, he lifts up his hands and said, lifted up his hands and said, Father, I thank you for what you're going to provide us today. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. It was the baker down the street. He says, Mr. Mueller, I just, I knew, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt like God told me, your children didn't have bread for this, this morning for breakfast. And so at two o'clock in the morning, I got up and baked fresh bread. Here you go. And George Mueller said, thank you. The baker left. All of a sudden, another knock at the door is the milkman. He says, Mr. Mueller, I was passing by the orphanage and all of a sudden my milk cart broke down. And I just thought, hey, I'm going I'm to give all the fresh milk to the children here today so I can take my broken down cart and get it fixed. If only we saw our need and felt desperate like George Mueller. Not for bread and milk, of course. But if only we saw our desperate need for God and sought him like George Mueller did. The father knew what George Mueller and those children needed and provided just what he needed. And there's many, many other examples just with George Mueller and the children and the orphanages that we could recount. Luke could. He's read all about them. He knows what we need. And so we pray. We ask, we seek, we knock. But it's interesting. Jesus gets more specific about our needs. Jesus teaches us to pray for today's help, not tomorrow's. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily needs today. He says, give us, pray this way, Father in heaven, give us this day daily bread. Of course, we shouldn't apply this like some kind of two-by-four so woodenly and stiffly that, that we never pray for the future. Of course we pray for, for the future. But we can spend so much time anxious about tomorrow and next week and next year and five years from now and ten years from now. Oh my goodness, the future is so uncertain. We can be so anxious about that that we forget that God wants us to live today for his glory and wants to supply our needs today in such a way that it shows off that he is amazing, that he is awesome, that he is full of mercy and loving kindness. Later in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, what is your life? Or, you know, he says, look at, look at, why are you so worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow and they don't reap and your father feeds them. And look at, the, look at the lilies of the field. They do nothing to clothe themselves, and yet God has arrayed them with such beauty, more beauty than anything Solomon ever put on. And he says, we're to seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these other things will be added. And he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Listen to his reasoning. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that true? There's enough trouble today. There's enough trouble to get through today. There's enough things we need help with today. Again, of course we pray for the future. I mean, I pray for my children often, for their future spouses and so forth, but, but we are to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray for daily bread today. Bread from heaven for each day. Just as, Jesus, just as God provided for the Israelites. And so we should pray this way that God would give us today what we need. May God give us, excuse me, make us desperate to see our needs, our true needs. Our true needs. Again, there's no one here, probably, I don't think. If there is, please come talk to me because I got plenty at home. Our freezer's full of bread. But probably no one here is full, has bare cupboards or pantries at home or a refrigerator with no food in it. But you and I do need help today. We need daily wisdom, don't we? We need daily wisdom. I mean, every once in a while, God just shows me how much of an idiot I am. (laughs) Just as a reminder, like, you need my help. (laughs) You really need my help. And I do. 
We need daily wisdom. James 5.13 says, I mean, James 1.6 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, which we do. This is not meant to say, oh, I wonder who that's talking to. <laughs> if anyone lacks wisdom, yep. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Just one amen? Yeah. All right, Pam, you and me, we need wisdom big time. Okay, a couple of idiots. I'm joking, all right. Um, We need wisdom. Are you suffering? Are you suffering physically? Are you suffering emotionally? Are you suffering mentally? Are you in anguish for some reason? Listen to James 5, 13. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Have you ever heard someone say, I've said this before. I mean, so I know that, and I've heard other people say this too. They're suffering either with some kind of psychological issue or physically, and they try everything else. And they say, well, let's pray, I guess. As though, I guess, it's gotten that bad, huh? Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. Are you in need of financial provision? Pray. Psalm 34.10 says, The young lions suffer suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you feel burdened and weighed down with pressures and troubles today? Right now, I mean, anxious, weighed down with pressures. You don't know how you're going to get through this present situation Pray, pray, pray. Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. Or New American Standard says, Daily bears our burdens. Daily. And so Peter says, We are to cast our burdens on the Lord because he cares for us. Cast your anxieties, cast your burdens on the Lord. So Jesus wants us to see our need. He wants us to see our real needs, true needs. He wants us to see God's provision and God's strength and God's ability. And he wants us to pray for his daily help with the things that we need. Amen? Amen. He wants you to do that. Not just me, he wants you to do that. Humility, it takes humility. God grant us humility. Second age, honesty, silent age, honesty. Jesus teaches us to approach the Father in prayer with honesty for forgiveness. Jesus teaches us to, pray, to approach the Father in prayer with honesty for forgiveness. He says this, Father, he says pray this way, Father, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Don't raise your hand, okay? Don't show, don't give a show of hands or anything, but can you remember the last time you approached the Father for forgiveness? Just in honesty before God? I've sinned. Wow, I've sinned. Forgive me, Father. Jesus teaches us prayer is a place of honesty. This is what I said saying earlier about reality, being real with God. It's a place of honesty. Prayer is about our sin. We come to the Father for forgiveness. He knows everything. He's, he knows our hearts. He sees to the bottom of us. He sees from one ear to the other and everything in between in our minds. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Psalm 69.5, David says, the wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Now, of course, this can turn into a really unhealthy exercise where we never stop looking for sin in ourselves and never learn to rejoice in the forgiveness and free grace that is found in Christ. I don't think that's the problem most people suffer with. Some do. Some do. Right? Morbid introspection is a sin, and that's something to be repented of. <laughs> okay, it is. 
But honesty before God requires that we come to him and just in truth say, I've sinned, forgive me. Right? We're not to go looking for sin hidden somewhere, apparently out of sight, even out of my own sight. But we're to be, sin- we're to be honest about the sin we know. If you just unloaded on your wife or your husband, that's sin. It's not something else. It's not a misunderstanding. It's sin. And you ought to go to your father and ask forgiveness after you go to your wife and ask forgiveness (laughs) or your husband. If you lied to your boss, that's sin. Children, kids, kids of all ages, kids that are still living in the home, if you lied to your parents, said your homework was done and it wasn't, it's sin. Or if you lied about something else, it's sin. If you had a bad attitude with mom or dad at dinner time, it's sin. And we ought to learn to go to our father and ask forgiveness. This is not a small thing. Alyssa, during, during worship, was talking about relationship with God, and I can't remember what context it was exactly, but take us deeper in relationship with you. And I'm like, amen. We want that, don't we? Just do a thought experiment with me. Say you have a best friend or just a really good friend. You like being together. But uh, this friend also just has some mannerisms and, and things, and it just can be rude sometimes and can be abrasive and just, quite frankly, mean. And, and so you experience the good and the bad, but when they're rude and mean and abrasive and they sin against you, they never, ever acknowledge it and never apologize. Does that hurt the relationship? Of course it does. Of course it does. Many marriages are on the brink because of that. Well, with our Father, with our Father in heaven, I mean, we, we love to sing and talk about and praise God that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. They've been buried in the depths of the sea because of Christ. Praise God. Right? They will never be brought up in judgment against me ever. That is wonderful news. Enough to make us happy, as David said earlier, right? The one whose sins will never be counted against him, happy is that person. But in relationship to God as Father, relationship, true relationship, we confess our sins. We come and say, Father, I blew it. Forgive me. Help me. Forgive me. I I don't know why I did that. Asking the Father for forgiveness is part of how we grow in our relationship with him. And it's important to understand, when we sin horizontally against other people, when we sin against other people, even, you know, when we sin against other people, our friends, our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers, whoever, that we have first sinned against God. David, after his whole ordeal of impregnating Bathsheba, having her husband killed, <laughs> lots of sin. And Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance and confession. And he says this stunning thing. He says, against you, God, you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. We'd say, of course, he sinned against other people too. <laughs> Uriah got killed, <laughs> right, <laughs> to cover up his sin. But in comparison with the sin against God, it was as though he'd only sinned against God. And if we would know the joy of fellowship and relationship with our Father. It requires this kind of honesty. Again, not, not a sick and sadistic, in, morbid introspection. I don't mean that. 
I just mean honesty about what we know. Here's the amazing thing. When we're honest about our sins, we can expect them to be forgiven and we can move on. Yesterday at men's study, Tom, Tom said, brought that up. He said, you know, when we're honest about our sin and we confess them to God, we can just move on. It's like, amen, Tom, that's exactly right. We can move on when we're honest about them, right? When we ask for forgiveness, when we confess our sins, now listen, without excuses, without explanations, without blame shifting, when we say, I'm sorry, period, forgive me, period, instead of I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, but you know, Father, I shouldn't have done that, but she started it. <laughs> Parents, how, how well does that go over with your kids? The older kid punches the little brother or sister. I'm so, I shouldn't have done that, but she started it. Okay, now you've committed two sins. You hit her, and you are blame-shifting when we confess our sins, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that many Christians live with kind of a low-grade guilt because of just this cognitive dissonance or this dishonesty before God about our sins. We don't bring them to him. We don't confess them. We don't say, Father, forgive me for the sin and and go forward with a clean conscience. Cleansed. But notice what else Jesus teaches us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's assuming that we are not only seeking forgiveness from God, but we are also forgiving people. That we are forgiving others their debts. It's interesting that Jesus uses the word debt and debtors. Forgiveness is spoken of in the, in the, spoken of in the language of canceling debts. Jesus fleshes this out vividly in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You guys remember that parable? There's this king who's going about settling accounts and he comes to one of his servants and this servant owes him 10,000 talents. Now just to give you an idea, one talent is about 200 years of wages for a common laborer. It's a lot, a lot of money. This guy owed him 10,000 talents. And the king said, pay up. And the servant said, I I can't pay that. I just can't pay it. He said, please, just forgive me. I will do whatever I can to pay it back. He even promised to pay him back, I think. I'm trying to to remember exactly what he says, which he never would be able to pay it back. And the king says, okay. The king shows him mercy and says, all right, I cancel your debt. That servant who had that enormous debt canceled goes about his day and finds another servant who owes him, I think it was 200 denarii, okay? About, you know, nine months worth of wages for a common laborer. I mean, I mean a significant amount for a person, say 20,000, 30,000 bucks, something like that. And he says, you owe me money, pay up. I mean, I, say, I don't have the money. And he chokes this guy and says, I'm going to have you thrown in jail and your family until you pay every penny. Word got back to the king. He thought, how how could this happen? After I forgave him that mountainous debt and he couldn't forgive, relatively speaking, that tiny little debt. Forgiveness is canceling debts. Forgiveness says, it doesn't, it doesn't sweep under the rug what happened. Forgiveness says, yeah, you hurt me. Bad. But I'm not going to make you pay for it. I forgive you. Right? 
You hurt me bad. But I'm not going to make you pay for it. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm going to cancel your debt. And forgiveness really forgives. It doesn't just say the words I forgive. And, and of course, we need God's help with this, don't we? My goodness. I mean, especially some of you have been harmed and wronged tremendously. We really need God's help with this. But forgiveness really does forgive. Jesus says this in Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. See that connection with prayer? Whenever you stand praying, whenever you come before the Father and pray, whenever you draw near to the Father in his presence through Jesus, forgive. Don't come, don't come with all those resentments. Don't come lugging in all your bitterness and resentments. Or if you do, be ready to put them down. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. And the only way we can really do this is when we are reminded of the forgiveness we have received in Christ through his finished work on the cross, which is the point of the parable in Matthew 18. You see, you and I owed God this mountainous debt we could never pay. What's 200 times 10,000? I'm trying to think what that is. Who's a math whiz? Two million, something like that? Is that two million? million? Is that right? I'm looking at some people. I think Luke, all right, two million. Two million years of wages for a laborer. That's what he owed him. He was never going to, he could never pay that back. That's the point. You and I, mountainous debt, because of our sin against God, we could never pay it back, ever. And by sheer grace and mercy, canceled. It's canceled. We trust in Christ. We come empty-handed and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished. Debt canceled. And the Bible says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It doesn't say, it doesn't, forgiveness does not say you really didn't sin against me. It doesn't say that. It says, you did, and it hurt, and I forgive you. Forgiveness cost God his son on the cross, and forgiveness for us will cost us, but it's required. It is required. It is required. There's a lot at stake. It's required that we forgive. God forgiving you is at stake. No one, will, no one will go to heaven carrying their backpack full of resentment and unforgiveness and bitterness. Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others, there in the same passage, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, you might think this sounds like we earn forgiveness. I thought we were forgiven through faith in Jesus, and of course we are. Here's the thing. If you refuse to forgive, you are not failing to earn your salvation. If you refuse to forgive, you are revealing that you have no understanding of what it means to be saved by God's grace. That you don't know what it means to be forgiven by God, graciously, where God cancels your debt. And so in prayer, we approach God honestly for forgiveness and to forgive. For forgiveness and to forgive. Number three, the third age, holiness. Finally, Jesus teaches us to approach the Father in prayer for holiness. He says this. He says, pray this way. Father, lead them not into temptation, but deliver them from evil. Jesus teaches us to pray for God's help to live in a way that pleases him. I mean, 
when you, when you think about what we really need in life, we, we have daily needs, right? We need forgiveness, and we need God's help to glorify him in how we live. Jesus teaches us to pray for this. Does anyone else need help with that? The other night, I shared this with the men yesterday. I mean, it was one of those things, you know, God's word is so powerful in our lives to actually sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. The other night, you know, I, I just, I was a little frustrated about some things and I came home and, um, and got a little more frustrated about some things when I came home because, you know, uh, you know, my kids aren't perfect. Um, and got a little more frustrated. That's right, I know, it's, it's hard to imagine. Um, got a little more frustrated about things. And by the time the evening came, I mean, I was, I, I was, I, I was holding it in, but I was sinning in my heart. And this passage, this verse came to mind. This verse. This phrase, Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. <laughs> deliver me from this evil in my heart right now. And I prayed that. And he helped me. He helps us. He helps us in really, really big, major situations and in relatively small, minor situations. When was the last time you prayed that God would keep you from sinning? Do you ever pray that? God, help me not sin. Lead me not into temptation. Help me not to sin against you. And help me live to please you. These two requests are really two parts of one request. And you see that with the word but in, in between, right? Lead, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not this, but that. Help me not fall into temptation, but instead deliver me from evil. In other words, the evil we are to pray the Father would deliver us from is the evil of sinning. Because tem- when we fall into temptation, we fall into sin. Right? The devil was in the garden tempting Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And so we're to pray, Father, help me to live in a way that, that glorifies you and, 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 and shows that you are wonderful and amazing. Help me to not sin and besmirch your name and throw mud on your name. I think Jesus teaches us to pray this way for two reasons, obvious reasons, I think. Two obvious reasons. One is that our lives would reflect the glory of the God who saved us by the blood of Jesus from our sin and has given us new desires and new tastes and a new way to live. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and first part of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your lights shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus said we should want to live in such a way that it points that what we do, how we live, how we talk, how we, you know, what we believe comes out of our fingertips and out of our toes, right? Comes out in how we actually live. And we should want to live in such a way that it points to God's glory. We should want others to see it and say, wow, I, I think they're Christian. Now, let's face it. That doesn't mean everyone's going to like you. <laughs> Not everyone likes the way Christians live and what they believe. That, okay, fine. But we should want to reflect the glory of God. We should pray for our holiness because holy Christians glorify the Father. And worldly Christians, unholy Christians, diminish God's glory before others. 
and we exist for God's glory. There's no higher reason for why you are on planet earth. It is for God's glory. And Jesus has a passion for God's glory, and so should we. Well, the other reason Jesus teaches us to pray, help us live in a way that pleases you, is because it's for our joy. It's for our joy. David said a phrase earlier, he stole my phrase, and it's not really my phrase, but happy holiness. Happy holiness. We must not think that holiness is somehow a boring and treacherous endeavor, like this long, arduous journey through this, what seems to be an endless desert. <laughs> oh, we're trying to live holy lives. Oh my goodness. That is, that is pathetic. That's horrible. That's horrible. We must, we, we, we don't need to see holiness and happiness at odds at all. We don't need to choose between the two of them. Well, some people like to be holy and some people like to be happy. (laughs) Okay, guess what? If we have to choose between the two, we're choosing happy. Maybe a couple of ascetics like those desert fathers a long time ago, they'd choose holy. The rest of us are choosing happy. But here's the wonderful thing we don't have to choose. True holiness brings great joy. It brings great joy. In fact, I would say so much of our present sorrow, not all, but so much of it, is connected to sin. Unholy thinking, unholy living. 1 Peter 2, 2.11 gives us a great and sobering image. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as refugees on planet earth, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Passions of the flesh, those sinful desires in our fallen human nature. Not everything that you feel like doing is a good thing, obviously. Wait, but abstain from those things. Why? Because they wage war on your souls. For any Lord of the Rings fans, that image came to my mind. It's like the orcs breaching the wall of Helm's Deep. These passions of the flesh wage war on our souls. They do. On the other hand, 2 Chronicles 6.41 says, Let your saints or your holy ones rejoice. Let your saints rejoice at your goodness or because of your goodness. Charles Spurgeon puts it in a way that only he could put it. He says, holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. Amen? The death of sin is the life of joy. So God, help me. Help me to live and walk in a way that pleases you. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend in a letter. Listen to this. This is good. He says, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the year's end. <laughs> He's not an inspired author, of course. I mean, who knows, right? But, that, but wouldn't more people be holy and happy if you and I were? Doesn't that make you want to pray for your holiness and for mine? And we should pray this not just for ourselves. We should pray this for each other. Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so we pray, Father, don't let us slip and fall into temptation, but rather deliver us from the evil of sinning and from the evil one. 
Who would love to pull us into sin? The devil. Do you pray this way? Please do. Please pray this for me and pray this for yourself and pray this for us as a church and pray this for your family and pray this for your Christian friends and pray that more people would become Christians and happy, holy Christians. What happiness would be in our hearts? What happiness would be in our homes? What lively joy would actually be in our homes? and in our prayer meetings, and in our worship services, and around the dinner table, and wherever we are found. Do you have needs? Are you anxious about anything today? Anything. Pray. Ask the Father for help. Have you sinned? Even this morning, is God the searcher of human hearts putting his finger on something in your heart? Then ask forgiveness. Are you holding on to bitterness and resentment? You're holding on to resentment for someone else or towards someone else. Bitterness, they've harmed you, they've wronged you, and you will not forgive them. Pray, and when you stand praying, forgive. And remember, when you're trying to forgive them, remember how God has graciously, in Christ, forgiven you of all of your sins. And how could you hold on to unforgiveness toward that person or those people? Of course it's painful. Of course it costs you something. But Christ can give you the grace to forgive Jesus died covering all of our sins. And he did this so that we don't have to pretend that we're without sin. We can come honestly before God. Come honestly before the Father, confessing our sins, saying sorry without excuse, without justification, without blame shifting, and forgiving others as well. And do you want to be more like Jesus, but you find yourself stuck in a rut? a rut of lukewarmness, of worldliness, of temptation and sin, or maybe you just kind of go in this cycle of sin, temptation, sin, I feel bad for a bit and I do better, and then temptation and sin, I feel bad for a bit and I do better, temptation, sin. Pray that the Father would help you by his mighty spirit, who if you are a child of God, lives in you that he would help you not to fall into temptation and that he would deliver you from evil and empower you to live a extremely happy and holy life for his glory. Let's pray.